Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. As usual, Brendan here with Mark. It is episode number 120, Mark, Friday, January 31, 2020. And welcome to all our new listeners, vetgurus.com, the place to go, Mark. And uh, links to everything there. That's all I'm going to say. Links to everything, including our sponsors. Um, well, what have you been up to, Mark? Um, I'm trying to remember what I've done in the last week, and it's been a little bit of a blur. I've been listening and watching a fair bit of the tennis. As you know, I like the I like watching a fair bit of sports. So I've been watching a bit of the Australian Open here in Melbourne, and I did. We did take the we used to go every year, um, and even saw some of the semi-finals. I've never actually been to one of the finals, Mark, but I've been to a couple of the semis and certainly some lead-up um, matches as well. But um, I'm thoroughly well, it's enjoying surprising. it. It's a- it surprises me that with um, with a success, successful business and interest in tennis, that you haven't got a box. <laughs> what with all our um, all the money that I can plough into a spons- sponsorship there. Well, actually, one year, Mark, let me tell you a story. <laughs> one year, I did manage to score some um, sort of corporate um, tickets to a men's semi final, and it was amazing. Um, we had um, the full on meal before it, um, a full luncheon, and I think they had speeches by the the TV presenters who came into the lunchroom and gave us a bit of a chat about the players who are going to be up um, in the afternoon. Um, and I think where we sat, we had prime seats right near the right near the court, right um, just overlooking the players, and um, they had a little ice cream cart, um, unlimited ice creams, um, <laughs> just behind us. It was um, it was nice living the high life for once, Mark, and um, ever since that one I haven't um, been invited back. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know whether it was the alcohol or whether it was the fact um, we – You cleaned um, out the ice cream box. <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps it was that. But, yeah, so I'm thoroughly enjoying the tennis, but um, – not quite sure what's been going on at work. Um, we had a couple of days off with Australia Day and, um, yeah, back into it tomorrow I am, Mark. So what have you been up to? Well, we, we've enjoyed the Australia Day break. I had to do some work over the weekend. Though we had some interesting cases in hospital. But um, I was out uh, – I've was trying. i been trying um, a little bit more sort of portrait-style bird photography um, so I've been spending a little bit of time working with the um, with the macro lens, and uh, yeah, I've been enjoying that sort of different perspective on the birds. Portrait style bird photography. Now, I reckon the hardest job in the world would be a makeup artist for a bird. Mark, how do you do it? Well, you, it's a it's a good question because when you do these portrait style things. Um, it highlights like the birds that I've, I've used. Um, uh, we have a bird in hospital that's nice and relaxed, and so I've taken some shots of it. Um, but it is an injured bird, and um, and even though I only took two or three shots and got it back in the cage, you can see clearly that its plumage is unkempt. Um, and you do need to like it's not a good look. You want them to you know be displaying them themselves 
as perfectly as possible. I've got a couple of clients who have um, macaws and red-tailed black cockatoos, and I'm, my plan is to get some of those guys on the go. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's fun, Brendan. It's fun. And you can't get more relaxed than dead, Mark, so you've just got to sort of fluff up those feathers a little bit and um, stop that sunken eye look um, for the portraits for those ones, don't you? I know exactly what you mean, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> Good, yes, no. Well, I have been very slack with my photography in the last, well, few months, not just days, Mark, so I've got to get back into it. I keep saying that to myself, but um, life gets in the way with other other little hobbies and bits and pieces, doesn't it? Well, I think we should jump into our news stories, Mark, unless you have a review. Do you have a re- review this week? No, I don't. Okay. So you jump into your news story and it's um, not surprisingly, as always, it is an avian news story. What's it about? This one's uh, by Ben Collins, an ABC reporter, ABC Kimberley, um, and he's reporting the discussion he had with uh, Sean Dooley. Sean Dooley's the editor, and I think he's currently the president of BirdLife Australia, um, the editor of Australian BirdLife magazine, Um, and his discussion is about taxonomy, one of those really riveting, interesting topics that we cover quite often. Um, And the topic specifically that Ben and Sean covered was the changes to um, our rainbow lorikeet. Now, the rainbow lorikeet is uh, one of the most common birds across Australia in, uh, you know, most numerically common. Um, And it regularly is, you know, first, second or third in all those um, popularity votes. Uh, People do really love their rainbow lorikeets. And it's not surprising, Brendan, they're gorgeous looking birds and they're, you know, um, uh, interactive. They sort of behave a little bit, bit like feathered monkeys um, and um, and it's always uncanny to me how they get into a tree um, and disappear despite those immensely bright colours. Um, they pop into a gum tree and the reds and oranges and greens just melt them into the background. But the discussion that uh, Ben and Sean had was about this, um, this new thing where... Uh, the genetic analysis of a number of different populations of rainbow lorikeets has determined that um, instead of just one species, including the red-collared lorikeet from you know the far north and northwest, um, that all those species, so those were the red collars were considered a subspecies, but all those previously considered regional variants have now been elevated to species um, uh, uh, status. And it's like, I don't know how I feel about this, Brendan. I think um, uh, molecular uh, DNA techniques are marvellous scientific tools. Um, But, well, I mean, they just provide the, the, um, the evidence some some people will sit in a lab and do the analysis and if the genetics are sufficiently different, they'll whack them up as a new species. So there's been a lot of dividing going on in taxonomy lately. There's the lumpers and dividers as far as taxonomists are concerned and I think DNA has allowed a fair bit of division to go on. Um, there are slight differences between the different populations um, and certainly um, some of the island populations through Indonesia and New Guinea 
uh, you know, at least to my uh, bird clients, the avicultural clients, they're clearly considered a different species. So it's not a big surprise that the um, taxonomists have caught up with the um, with the aviculturists and now consider the rainbow lorikeet to be six different species of uh, very colourful honey-eating bird from Australia. Yes, and I must note, Mark, there are some very good portraits in that story of birds. So did you notice that? I did. I did indeed notice that. I very much noticed that. <laughs> yes. Um, much, well, much, much better than any of mine. Oh, I don't know about that. I think you're selling yourself short as usual, Mark. Well, my news story is a bit, bit of a bizarre one, and it's courtesy of our chief researcher, Doug. So thank you, Doug. And the headline is New Bone-Eating Life Form Discovered in bizarre alligator corpse study. So <laughs> that for, you, lo- you love that, Mark. That's a, a clickbait um, city for you, isn't of it? Of the that, highest um, order. <laughs> yes. And, well, it's, let, me, let me tell you about this particular story, Mark, and, um, yeah, I laughed. I laughed a fair bit reading this one. It was about a research grant that was given to some scientists and they decided to strap three dead alligators into weighted harnesses and drop them two kilometres down into the Gulf of Mexico. As you do, Mark, um, what else would you do with if you got given some money? Let's strap some dead alligators and drop them in the water, which is what they did. And the first gator, and they wanted to study what sort of what sort of um, way they would be devoured or, or eaten up by what organisms or, or creatures would, would um, feast on the carcasses, Mark. And the first gator was overrun with giant pink crustaceans within a day and slowly eaten. And the second one was devoured down to its skull and spine after 51 gay, days. And the third one, well, they um, it was taken away from the harness and they never found it. So they mainly talk about the first two, which are the ones that they could follow there. So, yeah, they... Um, where, where are we? They, and they t- sent down a camera-wielding robot to check on the first gator one day after it was sent down to the bottom of the gulf there, Mark, and they found that it was being picked apart by huge isopods, some of which had already burrowed inside the gator and begun eating it from inside. So they noted that these particular um, isopods can feed on a single meal and last um, for several months or years after that um, one meal um, without having to go hungry again. And the second gator, what they revisited the corpse after 51 days and they found it had been picked clean down to the bones and interestingly enough, the bones were caked in a mysterious, according to their report, a brown fuzz which they grabbed a sample from and DNA analysis revealed it was a newly discovered species of a bone-eating worm with the genus Osidex. And this is the first time of any Osidex species has been detected in the Gulf of Mexico eating alligators <laughs> on, the, on the floor of the um, two kilometres down. Um, so there you go. So... Well, I don't know what they get I'm, out I'm, of that. How you, how, well, I've got a question for you, Brendan. Like, wh- why alligator? Do they just have, like, was this a random, what have we got to drop to the bottom of the, like, I don't, I don't understand yeah. where the alligators I, come in. I, it's, 
I expect they had a couple of surf, surplus um, bodies and they said, let's get rid of them. <laughs> How can we um, use our use a bit of our research grant money to get rid of them and um, pretend that it's a decent um, study? So they just drop them in the, drop them in the water, Mark. Um, so there you go. Um, unless they've got something to do with the perhaps the um, – Maybe the local mafia <laughs> in Mexico or something. They were t- doing a few test- tests of um, body disposal. Who knows? But I thought it was absolutely bizarre sort of um, study. But, um, yeah, um, but it got me laughing. And thank you, Doug, for sending that um, completely um, useless um, article to us. But it was very good for the podcast. And um, keep up with the um, keep up with the um, list of um, interested articles you send to us. Yeah, so that's my article. And, um I have nothing more to say about it, Mark. Um, and I think we should jump into our very important topic. And as usual, the vet gurus, Mark, we're always at the cutting edge of news, aren't we? And this week, we want to get stuck into a discussion about a very hot topic. Well, it's more than hot, hot isn't it? It's the human coronavirus outbreak that's happening or happened and happening, continuing in China, and it's potentially spread into other regions of the world. So... And we want to chat a little bit about how this relates to veterinary science and zoonoses and one health and um, with a, a little bit of a discussion that we're going to kick off about. Um, there was an article, Mark, which I sent to you, which was a research paper that that tried to sort of indicate that perhaps the virus spread from bats and then through through snakes and then to bats and then perhaps to humans from the market, which they're pretty certain that the virus originated in that market in, what was it, Wuhan um, in China. And um, since then, we've done a little bit of research, which is unusual for us, isn't it, Mark? And um, we've chased up a, a few articles and we've also contacted an expert veterinary virologist, which we will not name in case he or she does not want their name be smirked by us and um they've mentioned a couple of interesting things so yeah what's your thoughts on it mark um, i'm just going to jump in and say what what do you think about this whole thing and um then we'll sort of pick it apart about um and we'll chat about a couple of these articles well i think um the first thing i would say is that um that uh it's like you know obviously a serious illness a hundred i think 107 people at the moment have passed away and so i don't want to do anything to um lessen the seriousness of the the uh the nature of the disease i know the australian government this morning uh changed the official status on the advice of uh the world health organization to a potential pandemic which raises a whole series of um of international um, responsibilities and barriers so it is a serious thing but as far as this specific article is concerned um, about the uh, um, the snake being the source of the coronavirus I've just got one word for you Brendan bollocks I just don't think <laughs> I don't think it's true I think I think some people in a in a research setting uh, did find some evidence of uh, correlation between some of the the uh, the proteins the the glycos the glycoprotein spike and uh some of the um structures in in uh, uh some of the snake viruses but it's just not enough to make that call in my opinion i think um uh, uh that it's 
you know, been probably whacked into a journal pretty quickly to gazump a number of other people and get their name out there as a research group rather than uh, presenting good science. But then even though I've just started with the whole it's bollocks thing, I think this is uh, something that we've got to accept about science, that sometimes people are going to present research information and it might be a little bit of a hypothesis. They might even overstate the case a little bit, overcook the uh, article. Um, But the nature of science is that over time there will be reviews of that publication and the veracity or otherwise of that that um, statement will be uh, challenged and and um, and eventually it'll either be accepted as fact or um, or not. And I think the most likely thing um, from what reading and research, you know, this is like you said, we usually do quite a lot of research, and this time we've turned it up a notch and uh, actually read a couple of papers. Um, <laughs> Yes. My, my understanding is that it's very unlikely to be a, uh, um, you know, snakes are very unlikely to be involved in the process. Um, it's really, I find it fascinating that's, that bats are such a reservoir of viruses that give trouble to people. And the whole process of potentiation that, uh, that, uh, bats will struggle to deliver those viruses directly to people. But if they can infect uh, a horse or a palm civet or um, some other mammal, it seems that the process of infecting another mammal leads to changes in these viruses regularly, which cause them to be dangerous to people subsequently. Yes, and perhaps I'll have to double-check whether these the people who wrote that research article have been dropping gators down the water, um, down into the bottom of the ocean as well um, in their spare time. Um, well, let's get back to the um, start of this process and what we do know about it um, and how it potentially relates to all of us in the veterinary industry about um, making us a little bit more aware and, and, and think twice about, um, you know, just some of the infectious control or, or lack of control that we do in our practices as well, um, Mark. So the outbreak of viral pneumonia in Wuhan is associated with the history of exposure to virus reservoir at the Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market, and that's where they're pretty certain that it came from, Mark, which is obviously suggesting a possible zoonosis because that seafood market sold many live animals such as snakes, Bats, birds, frogs, hedgehogs, rabbits, and even marmots, Mark. And um, interestingly enough, during my short trip to China last year, I was a little bit surprised, although I knew it happened, um, the large amount of of wildlife that was available at these local markets, um, not just in Beijing, but some of the, a couple of the rural centres I, I visited, Mark. And um, yeah, it was um, a little bit um scary um the, the the amount of animals and the, and the range of animals that you could um purchase um and eat you know and get cooked up in front of you um not that i i had that done for me um yeah so um that's where they think it occurs or occurred from or started um and was probably um patient zero from there and we do know that coronaviruses and this is a coronavirus for those of our listeners who don't know and um the 
SARS that occurred was a coronavirus and the MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, was also a, um, a coronavirus um, group um, organism. So um, they are a big concern and I think we need to, well, you're going to chat about the One Health bit in a sec, Mark, but we need to always think about our, you know, the species we have in front of me as in, in practice, especially some of these species that might be a bit unusual and exotic, which we often are seeing being unusual and exotic pet vets, Mark. We need to stop being slack with our with our um, infectious control procedures, which I tend, tend to be. Um, and I think our server was just lost there, Mark, but we're back in, so hopefully you can still hear me. Um, I can, yep, definitely can. Excellent. So, yeah, so do you want to, take over from here mark as far as your your, your thoughts on our concerns with um with zoonosis well, a, and the one health aspect there is a couple of things that um that i thought worth mentioning and um and particularly in light of this coronavirus uh problem and the you know the hendra virus that we face in eastern and northern australia um, I think that it is really important that each of the veterinary hospitals that uh, um, is in those areas has, like, you know, the full suite of of um, armaments. They have a written protocol about what to do so that the vets who work there know exactly what to do. They have uh, personal protective equipment that they can use in the appropriate circumstances. Um, they definitely should be vaccinated for the lysivirus if they come into contact with bats, but they've got to be aware that um, that these, uh, you know, the viruses like Hendra um, uh, that are, that are, not going to that are going to originate in bats as the reservoir, but are potentiated by other species, um, and um, and make sure that they are careful and that they have those protocols in place. Even simple things like um, it's all well and good to have PPE in your hospital, um, but I think there needs to be a process of um, becoming familiar with it because uh, definitely putting that gear on, we have it, and putting it on compromises your, um, you know, your your faculty. You, you cannot move as, uh, in the same way. You can't draw blood the same way. Um, looking through the the, uh, the sort of screen that will protect your face from blood splashes, um, that's different. So if you're doing that putting that gear on the first time you have a, a, a problem that you're concerned about, the risk of you making a mistake is increased. And so I think um, I'd like to see people make an effort to practice using those things and, um, and yeah, have, have it in their mind that, uh, that we do uh, live in a, a world where there's the potential for these problems. Absolutely. Well said, Mark. And I... Well, I even worry about, um, and you probably see lots of these, like psittacosis uh, or, or um, potential psittacosis um, cases with with um, all the birds you see in practice. What's your general protocol for dealing with um, birds um, and potential transmission of, of the chlamydia organism? Well, that's a, I, I'm, that's a fascinating question because as well as what happens in our hospital i'm i'm um i'm aware uh through the work on the board in new south wales about the way that uh, veterinary hospitals use their isolation facility um 
And and I and look, I can tell you, Brendan, that um, we certainly take advantage of isolation for the obvious diseases, parvovirus, um, the the, uh, the the Khaleesi virus in cats, um, but. Without a doubt, um, I would say more than 90% of the use of our isolation room is in association with um, uh, uh, um, chlamydia, um, isolating birds that uh, we think are suspicious of chlamydia, and um, making sure that our staff uh, have um, at least some protection, masks and whatnot, masks and gloves, so that it's less likely um, that they will come down with the disease. Now, the good thing about chlamydia, and I don't, you know, a, a cursory um, listen to this podcast might think that we're sensationalising sensationalizing the problem, but um, I think that um, that it is, it is a um, difficult Chlamydia is a difficult disease to catch and needs certain circumstances to be caught. But um, but it definitely uh, the the uh, staff that work in hospitals that deal with avian patients in particular are clearly at increased risk, and we want to see them um, take those steps to lessen the chance that they get these zoonoses. Yes, good answer again. Gee, you, you you're smashing them out of the out of the court, Mark, as they say. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you and your tennis analogies. What is, I wanted to ask you um, about the whole. Um, see, I the, you know at a, a veterinary conference that you and I attended. Uh, I think it was about five years ago. I can't remember which one it was. The AVA conference where um, there was a lot of One Health talk about at that stage. And um, for those uh, listeners who aren't aware, One Health is a um, is a, a policy. Um, an approach, a strategy of the World Health Organization that recognizes the the um, multifactorial nature of um, disease and particularly recognizes the the role of um, of uh, zoonoses um, and also recognizes some um, uh, antibiotic resistance um, and so the critical role in one health that um, veterinary healthcare professionals play in developing human health has been recognized and so did, what do you think of this one health approach um, do, do you see it as something that general practitioners should be aware of Brendan absolutely but I think it's something that hasn't to my mind it hasn't particularly progressed much as far as getting together veterinarians with with um, human medicos and other scientists and collaborating together for these sorts of um, incidents and and um, responses mark um, I don't know what your thoughts are at the official level in in New South Wales there but I've been disappointed with the fact that gee it, you know let's all work together and and um, we've all got skills in our individual areas and um, together one plus one can equal three but um it just seemed everybody seemed to get a bit excited about it, and it just seems to sort of fizzle along. What have you found? Well, I, I think, um, yeah, I, 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 I do think that at a at a government level, at a government level, as a, at the World Health Organization or the the um, World Veterinary Organization, at those levels, there's like a lot of work being done. But I do think you're right. I think it's difficult for that to filter down. Um, and be, you know, 
um, something that's on the mind of clinicians um, every day. And I do think there's a little bit of a, you know, um, uh, what's the, without wanting to sound too judgmental, I think that um, those, just because you say, oh, we need to work together, um, I think that um, maybe some medicos look down their nose at um, those of us who work with animals. And and similarly, there's some vet... And I've been guilty myself um, of uh, considering um, uh, human medicos, maybe not considering some of the more obscure diseases and maybe being a bit judgmental. So I think those bridges between the professions, while the avenues directly to oversight organisations are good, the actual connections between professions are yet to develop yep i agree totally mark and it's it's a work in progress and i think we need to actively from the veterinary perspective um get out there and um encourage those connections and um say look we're all in it for the same thing we're not trying to take over human medicine we're all trying to work together to to solve problems and um yeah it just needs to get moving a bit more so yeah um, well, I do, and I think um, the key thing there to emphasise is that um, there can be no um, greater impetus to the role of uh, veterinarians in One Health than the fact that um, zoonoses and antibiotic resistance are so, uh, you know, so fundamental um, that, um, you know, the, the use of antibiotics in some parts of the world has already resulted in um, organisms that, pretty much resistant to all the antibiotics we have. Um, and um, it's almost certain the pattern of these uh, animal-borne viruses which make the jump and then become potential agents for uh, pandemics, it's um, that vets are right at the crux of all of that. What do you reckon, Brendan? I've got, you've been to those, um, those places in China, the markets at... Uh, at um, at uh, rural communities, and and I've been to some of those in Indonesia, and crikey's, it was um, you know that that whole cultural problem um, of coming from a wealthy Western country and um, seeing people live on subsistence in subsistence circumstances, um, but but geez, I think the time might be coming when. Um, when our governments might be asking those governments in those countries to take a bit more of a imposing attitude to to wild animals as um, as routine dietary supplements, uh, particularly things like bats. I, 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 do you, it's a, a difficult cultural question. How do you see that playing out? I think it will come from above. So in China, for instance, I think the the authorities will just say you're not allowed to do this particular thing again and um, it'll stop it. Um, you know, I think it will come from above um, there and you can see with sort of the response and the good news with the response from what I see with this this outbreak is it has been a hell of a lot quicker um, than it has been with a few of the previous um, outbreaks of um, virus potential pandemics world mark and they they got onto it reasonably quickly with with um sequence 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 in it and um trying to you know get that vaccine up and going soon but i think they quarantined off what 40 million people in in that regional city already um and if if these things keep happening which they will if if they don't stop 
sell any of these sort of animals in the markets and that, then um, it will continue. So I reckon it's just going to come from above and that'll they'll just won't let um, won't let them do it and they'll get pretty tough on it. And that's how, that f- from my perspective, I think that's how it will happen. And um, gee, I tell you what, a few of the lunches that I had there, I, I got sick of being offered bullfrog um, soups um, in the lunch because I had lots of lots of um, interesting things that were offered to me to to and you know not not suitable for my palate I mean some people might like them but you know I I, I, I really enjoyed the spices that they had in some of these um, meals that I was offered but um, when I saw a half a frog floating um, at the top there it um, made it a little bit difficult to eat some of the things and um, I think one of the one of the foods they offered to me at one stage they wouldn't even tell me what it was they said it was some type of meat dish but I don't know what it was Mark and um, my interpreter would not translate it to me um, so I was a little bit more worried about that particular dish. Look I think the the key thing from my point of view is I'm not I'm not uh, I don't want to be judgmental about um, you know we, we shouldn't be What's the, I'm trying to find the right words. That, that there is a tone that um, certain people in certain countries eat weird things, but it's all just perspective. And you know, um, there's, there's there's sort of you know um, no there's no uh, reason that one particular animal should not be um, should not be a, a food just on the basis of the fact that it has muscle and protein. And the ones that we do select to eat are just a random selection of convenience. Um, but I do think step outside that paradigm and and you do have to, like, go, okay, well, bats are a, a real problem. Let's not eat those guys. And wild animals, um, you know, may they're probably reservoirs of potentiated virus and maybe we should can those and just stick to uh, a variety of domestic species um, and let's not judge anyone for which ones of those they choose to eat. Um, yeah, I, 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 I certainly wouldn't want anyone to think that we were being in any way judgmental of any race and about the way they uh, choose to eat things. But, um, but I do think that uh, those general principles of wild stuff and stuff associated with bats, they probably should get short shrift on uh, menus, in my opinion. Yes, and I think the whole zoo in the market um, of, of potential food sources just needs to stop as well, and I'm sure that they will will stop that. Um, even if even if eating particular species continue, it needs to be done in done in a manner that doesn't in, encourage these nasty diseases um, to flourish. So yeah. Um, Yes, well, there's that. We've solved um, we've solved the um, coronavirus issue there, Mark. Um, not quite. And my concern is that it will. Um, it's, gee, I just hope they've um, things are contained and that it doesn't doesn't spread to a, a worldwide pandemic. And I know we've had a few um, a few cases here in Australia. And um, let's just hope for everybody's sake that um, it manages to. To die down. Well, did send you. Um, by, I, by I was just going to. I sent you that. Did yep. you see that picture I sent you, which sort of stuck? It was a graph uh, which put the virus, uh, the current coronavirus, on a bit of a, um, a a graph of danger and and infectivity, how dangerous it was, and how potentially infective it was. And you know, it, it's it's serious. 
Um, but and I, as I said before, don't want to downplay the fact that it's already uh, resulted in the death of over 100 people. But um, it doesn't, at the moment, look like it has the sufficient infectivity to um, to reach a certain status of pandemic nature. Um, so that's probably a good thing. It, it uh, would appear that it's... Um, and the other thing to remember, Brendan, the other point I would like to make in this discussion is that last year in Australia, um, 3,000 people, mainly old and infirm people, 3,000 people died of the influenza virus, a virus that's entire, well, significantly preventable with vaccination. Um, and and so this... this uh, um, the the current coronavirus it may not be as dangerous to us as um, the influenza virus floating around. So so yeah, I, I think we want to keep it in perspective. Um, but um, but definitely, uh, uh, you know what's what's that old adage? One of our ancient governments said, "Alert." Uh, um, uh, alarm, alert, but not alarmed. Alert, but not alarmed. Yeah, that was uh, it. Was a very good. Um Graph that Mark wasn't the microbe scope um, was um, the um, website wasn't it or information is beautiful net I think it's the actual website that you that you grabbed that one from and it's it's a, a great little um, visual depiction of um, it has deadliness on or on, of fatality rate on one axis and it has what does it have on the other Mark um, contagious. Um, so say not contagious, very extremely, and get treatment. <laughs> That's the last one. Or you're dead, you know. Um, yeah. So um, less deadly, quite deadly, deadly and extremely deadly um, on, on the x-axis and contagion on the um, y-axis. Um, yeah, so very interesting, yes. And um, coronavirus is sort of down towards the bottom area, but it's still listed as contagious um, and and what almost almost um on the on the border of less deadly and quite deadly so it's still it's still a concern but it's certainly not anything like um what, what's the bad ones i've got their smallpox rabies dengue fever has a big one cholera measles you know measles and whooping cough inc- incredibly um infectious so yes so yes well i think we'll end with that mark um it's not a very positive um um positive sort of um, podcast but we wanted to at least chat a bit about um, some of our thoughts on the coronavirus and how it relates to to animal health and us as veterinary practitioners and um, the one health aspect that you that we briefly touched on and um, I think with that I think of that Mr. Outros here Mark you'll have to um, continue this next Next time thanks for listening for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time